Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm still Ed. My pronouns are they and them. And today we're talking about a class of Dungeons & Dragons characters known as the Artificer. Yay, my favorite. Yes, it's also perhaps one of the more unusual Dungeons & Dragons classes. The least classic of all the classes. And, um, actually a really good one. It fills a niche that nothing else does. And because of that, I think it's a valuable addition to the game. But before we really dig into there, we have a segment that we call The Weekend Hobby where we talk about what we've done the last week in terms of games and such. I'll go first. Uh, Because the last weekend was Easter, I didn't get together with my board game group. Did still have D&D games. Uh, One of my Eberron games did a quick dungeon in the Mornlands. They laid a ghost to rest. They met a giant crocodile and decided that not chasing it into the river was a good idea because... Most of them can't swim. And then they headed back to town and started following lightning rail tracks and came across an abandoned train. And their first thoughts were basically, we need to loot this train and have it be our new mobile base. So the party's barbarian went up to go open the door and found that it stuck to him. And that's when the train turned into a giant colony of mimics. Oh shit, it's a mimic. It was eight giant mimics that were, were better stat-wise than a normal mimic because the Mornland is like that. Good surprise. They had to, like, freak out for a little bit. Um, eventually, they figured out that mimics are quite slow, and if you're not in a dungeon in an enclosed area, you can pretty easily just run away from them and shoot them with spells from a distance. Oh no, it's slowly pseudopodding toward us. Whatever will we do? Yeah, so they murdered them all, but it was a good freak out and a very good, like, Mornland thing. Because you're not going to get that in the normal world. My Cyberpunk Sprawl campaign had a mission to go break into the garage of a rich celebrity Instagram influencer type guy and destroy his collection of exotic vehicles. Well, they were told it was to get revenge on him, but it could also have been to increase his influencer status and get him in the news. As one does for the TikToks. Yes, do it for the gram. Uh, They were preparing to do this. One of them was like, we need to get explosives to blow up his cars. And the others were like, no, we can just go in with baseball bats. At which point one of them actually did the research to find out what his collection of exotic vehicles was, and they learned that he liked armored cars and tanks. Yeah, you're going to need those explosives. They bought explosives, yeah. They bought some plastic explosives and detonators, and then snuck into his exclusive mansion in Lake Oswego. I'm pretty sure you could at least one of those mansions is going to have some kind of armored vehicle in it. Well, it's extra... Freaky in the cyberpunk future of Neo-Portland, because Lake Oswego is a secure community, meaning it is gated and walled and patrolled by drones and security forces that will shoot people who are not residents. I guess in uh, real life, it depends on how many oligarchs we have living down there. 
yeah, in the future of Neo Portland, there's more than one. There's a, there's a few more than currently. And they take uh, normal people trying to walk around there a lot more seriously. Hey, you normie, get out of here. Yeah. Um, they did manage to sneak in via the canal that connects Lake Oswego to the Tualatin River. Real thing. Um, not real well used, but they snuck in through that and used a like raft to get across the lake and get to this guy's mansion and got in one of the vehicles and used the cannon to destroy most of the others, aside from the tank, which they dropped the bomb in and just blew up. Yeah, they should have stolen it. No, they should have stolen the hovercraft recon vehicle that I mentioned, because that could have driven across the lake. And also, it had a active camo system, which would have allowed them to escape much easier. Working smarter, not harder. But they didn't actually turn that one on. They just opened up the hatches and climbed around in most of the other ones. It's all in Russian. I don't know what these buttons do. Well, that one was in German. Oh, I I probably could have helped out with that one a little bit. Yeah. The, the tank was all in Russian. Because it was a joke about how Russian tanks are bad. I remember my fencing coach used to buy his uh, uh, fencing blades from a company that made them out of recycled uh, Soviet tanks. And man, those were terrible blades. Yeah, I can't imagine that the level of hardening required for a tank is going to work well with the level of flexibility required for a fencing foil. Basically, you make one touch, it bends, and then it is never straight again. And eventually you're just left with a tangled massive metal, but you would get them for like a couple of bucks each, so I guess it was worth it in the long run. I guess, yeah. And yeah, that was essentially my weekend hobby. Only had two sessions this week. How about you, Ed? What have you done? Uh, my D&D game is currently on a little bit of a hiatus while one of our players is traveling. Uh, it's a good opportunity for me to kind of tweak around with some of the storytelling. Since up until now, I've pretty much been running the game fairly by the book, player shenanigans notwithstanding, but I've noticed that it comes across rather bland. There's not a whole lot of, like, fleshing out that's given to really much of anybody, which I don't know if that's indicative of bad writing or is being somebody who's running their first campaign out of a book, if it's left kind of intentionally vague so that you can apply your own motivations and shenanigans onto those characters. So I have a little bit of retooling to do, hopefully make things more interesting for the player. And I think for official D and D campaigns, it's generally the second mm -hmm. so that the dungeon master has the ability to be flexible with how they want to characterize people. As long as it's not highly specific people. Yeah. Cause there'll be like characters who are supposed to be, you know, major characters within the plot or within a particular story arc. And it's like, oh, well, they don't they don't really have much beyond like a one sentence motivation. And it took a while for me to figure out that, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to actually build on that, not necessarily just go with it as written. Yep. Uh, what else? Still working on Dark Souls. I uh, was trying to do some fancy marble floorings for some of the guys that show up in the big fancy castle about midway through the game. Uh, 
I've been able to get the airbrush marbling effect to work in the past. I don't know why it didn't work this time, but it kind of borked one of the models I was working on. So I ended up going back to playing Dark Souls and realized that the floor, in fact, is not marble. It's a, a bunch of fancy, shiny tiles. So that means I get to do some experiments with trying to do pinstriping to get that uh, tiled floor effect. So we'll see. But what if the floor was lava? Um, I have not started working on the expansion that takes place in the lava realm yet. Aww. I think one of the boss uh, monsters for one of the later expansions, his only the upper half of his torso is visible because the rest of him is supposed to be submerged in lava. So that will be a cool looking lava base whenever I get around to that. But making some good progress on the on the Dark Souls stuff. Uh, I got my cats for Cats and Catacombs all primed and ready. I just need to look up what the actual various breeds of cat look like. That's a lot harder with cats than it is with dogs, I have to warn you. Yeah, it seems like cats, they're just like, I don't care, just give me any color. Yeah. And then at some point I should probably go back to finishing uh, Crisis Protocol because I'm just so tantalizingly close to having the, the base set finished. But my work schedule kind of exploded lately, so I've not had quite as much paint time as I want. But hopefully that means that uh, I'll end up with more overtime, which means more money that I can blow on uh, Crisis Protocol and just slowly shift our store's uh, stock of models from their storefront into my closet. Yeah, that's where they should be, right? For the moment, they're all in there looking very sad at me being like, why aren't we painted? Like the man says... Finish painting the models you have before you buy new ones. Kind of what I got to do at the moment, because my uh, my work schedule was pretty light there for a while. So, with the weekend hobby out of the way, let's get on to the topic at hand. The Artificer. Woo! Probably the closest D&D class to my actual profession. Yes, inspired by steampunk, magitech, alchemy, and, you know, magical clockwork designs... The Artificer was first introduced in 3.5 as part of the Eberron campaign setting that was published in 2004. It should have been 3.5? Yes. Whoa. My mind was just blown. What, did you think it was from an older edition? No, I thought it showed up in 5. No, it was part of the Eberron campaign setting. Whoa. Originally published in 2004, like I said. Uh, the setting focuses on magic essentially being a replacement for technology... And artificers are the ones who build and maintain the magic items and constructs that fill the world. Now, I say artificers first showed up in 3.5, but the artificers in 5th edition ha include alchemists as one of the subclasses, And alchemists have been around a bit longer, with alchemist subclasses of wizards showing up in 1st and 2nd edition. So there's something of a link back to that. But that link skips 3, 3.5, and 4th edition. So, eh, a little bit of both. Also, the Artificer in 5th edition does not act quite the same way as previous Alchemists did, so... Gotta get my lawful evil Alchemist Artificer debasing that currency. Since the introduction in 3.5, Artificers have been adapted a bit to fit with other settings beyond just Eberron and work in ways that aren't simply just magic is technology. 
which is helpful if you want to run an artificer in any campaign setting that isn't Eberron. So in 3.5, artificers weren't actually spellcasters. Instead, they had access to infusions, which allowed them to imbue items with temporary magical effects, including some that were just straight-up spells. Uh, they had specialized abilities that made it easier for them to craft normal magical items, and a number of abilities to make using and creating complicated magic items much easier and faster. They were able to craft magic items like a wizard, but levels before a wizard could. Get on my level. In this edition, artificers were able to create a huge number of infused items in a given day, but those infusions would mostly wear off quite quickly, many of them having durations around like 10 minutes per level. So they could enchant your sword and it would be good for the next hour, but then it would just be a normal sword again. I'm going to need a, a subscription to this magical sword service if you want to keep going. Yeah, they were subscription-based. But at higher levels, they could infuse dozens of items in a single day. That's a lot of work. Yes, it would be. And probably a good thing they changed it in 5th edition. In 4th edition, artificers were an arcane leader class. Like in 3.5, they were introduced in the Eberron Players book for that system. Uh, they were able to cast spells, and they also had the ability to enhance magical items carried by other players. 5th edition Artificers, again, showed up originally in the Eberron setting book, called Rising from the Last War in this edition, because everything in 5th edition needs to have a subtitle. Artificers were then eventually reprinted and expanded upon in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, this reprinting, and the fact that they don't just show up in a setting book, is why I've felt that it's viable to include them in this series on player classes. We're doing player classes that are available to everyone and aren't just kind of setting restricted. Woo, we're a base class now. Looking at you, Bloodhunter. Artificers in 5th edition are intelligence-based half-casters, wielding arcane magic and magical items. They get magic up to 5th level spells, including cantrips, and the ability to infuse items with magical powers. They have a, four different subclasses called Arc Artificer Specialists, and these add a whole lot to the base class in terms of abilities and options and differentiating way more than some of the other classes get, honestly. Not all of the other classes, but certainly it creates a stronger initial differentiation than, say, wizards or clerics get. Basic artificers get the ability to create minor magical effects, something like little magical tools that create lights or audio recordings or display a picture. I call this one a flashlight. Yeah, you could have a little magical flashlight or nightlight kind of thing. Their list of spells is more limited than that of a wizard or sorcerer and focuses mostly on physical effects that could be created. Artificers casting spells can do it in a whole... in a number of different ways, from either explaining it away as them having, like, a tool that they use to create the effect, or using a contraption to just cast a spell through, or combining stuff and making a potion and throwing it, and that doing the damage that the spell would normally do. Or if you're me, just spreading gasoline on the floor and lighting it on fire. Yeah, that, you know, having a contraption that does that is sort of an artificer move. 
Artificers also get infusions again. They can infuse a much more limited number of items, but the magic remains in that item until they want to infuse something else or the artificer dies. Infusions range from magically enhancing weapons and armor to replicating a variety of common magic items to making homunculus servants. At higher level, the artificers can produce artificer uh, can produce artisans tools out of thin air, magically crafting them, and they get bonuses when using the tools to perform tasks like picking locks or smashing through a door or whatever you might do with various tools. They also get the ability to give other characters a bonus equal to their intelligence modifier to like help them out with something. It's righty tidy, lefty loosey. Yeah, I always treat it as shouting advice, like, have you tried turning it off and then on again? As somebody's fiddling with a lock. They get an increase in how many magic items they can attune to, something that no other class gets. Everybody else is stuck being attuned to just three items. And eventually gain a bunch of bonuses if they are wielding multiple magic items at once. Increases on saving throws and special health stuff. It's quite neat. Which brings us, of course, to the four specializations. The first artificer specialization is the Alchemist. They specialize in potions and combining ingredients to create magical effects. Always remember, add acid. Alchemists gain a number of bonus spells, such as Ray of Sickness, Healing Word, and eventually Cloud Kill. They also gain the ability to create experimental elixirs. Special potions that provide semi-random helpful effects when drunk. Get ready for a trip, man. Eventually, they gain bonuses to their concoctions from increased healing to creating potions of lesser restoration for free. At 15th level, they gain resistance to acid and poison damage from having dealt with so many of these crazy alchemical shenanigans, can no longer be poisoned, and can cast certain healing spells for free once per day. I'm going to be the fantasy Walter White. Yeah, that would be a valid interpretation of an alchemist artificer. The next one is the armorer artificer, which is Iron Man with magic. Armorer artificers focus on creating a specialized magical suit of armor that they can wear. They get bonus spells focused mostly on direct damage and defense, stuff like magic missile, mirror image... Wall of Force, eventually. The arcane armor they build has a number of interesting effects and comes in two modes, either Guardian or Infiltrator. Guardian gives them temporary hit points and a, like, melee damage to thunder attack where they punch people and it does thunder damage and can, like, disorient whoever they hit. Infiltrator improves stealth, increases movement speed, and gives you a ranged lightning attack. At higher level the armorers can also start to infuse the different parts of their armor as separate items. So they can infuse, like, the torso, the gloves, the boots separately, meaning that they can have multiple infusions on what would normally be one item. So, uh, yeah, they can really buff up their defense, they can get boots of flying, they can do all sorts of things. And as they get to, like, their top level, the armors gain additional effects, just making them even more 
terrifying to face in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Next, we have Artillerist Artificers, my personal favorite mode. They specialize in using magic to do direct destruction. They can basically be played as magical gunslingers if you're looking for a way to do that, or as just wizards that unleash all the magic for direct blasts. They get spells like Shield, Scorching Ray, and uh, Fireball. Normally if I'm on a job site and something blows up, it means that I've done something terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah, well, these are the blasty artificers, so... They went to the fun engineering school that the army sends you to? Yes. Yes, they did. They get the ability to create an Eldritch Cannon, which can be either a flamethrower, a force ballista, or a protector. Artillerists can use their bonus action to trigger the cannon, creating either a cone of fire damage a bolt of force damage, or a burst of temporary hit points. At higher levels, artillerists can create an arcane firearm, giving them essentially a spell-casting focus that, gives, that does extra damage. If you want it to be like an actual firearm, you could do that and say that when you cast Firebolt through it, that's a bullet, rather than, you know, a spell. It would be up to your dungeon master for that, but that's the easy way to do gunslingers in 5th edition. I'd prefer to go with a literal firearm where just one arm is constantly on fire. Yeah, I'm not sure an art artificer is the right choice for that. Because none of them are immune to fire damage. Boo. Also, Eldritch Cannons start to do more damage, and they get a self-destruct function, so you can walk them into places and blow them up. And eventually, those cannons generate a field of magical protection that provides cover to people around them. Oh, and you can do two of them instead of just one. Just deploy turrets everywhere. <laughs> the last of the Artificer Specializations is the Battlesmith. Also the best one. I would disagree, but the Battlesmiths are mechanical clerics. They get bonus spells focused on buffing and protecting their allies, stuff like heroism, aura of vitality, and eventually mass cure wounds. They also get access to martial weapons rather than, you know, more basic stuff, and can use their intelligence modifier when attacking with a magical weapon rather than strength or dexterity. They build themselves a mechanical guardian known as a Steel Defender. Rusty the Pug! Which takes the form of, like, a steel dog or lion or some other sized, some other medium-sized beast that fights alongside the artificer and can protect them from incoming attacks. At higher levels, they get the extra attack feature, so they can hit people more, can do extra damage, or heal an ally when they hit someone with a magical weapon. And at the... Highest levels, they improve their Steel Defender even further, giving it more hit points, more damage, better armor class. It, basically, it makes them really, really scary when this uh, mechanical dog charges towards you and everything you throw at it just bounces off. I don't remember how buffed my, my Robo-Pug was other than having a uh, wand of magic missile that let him do laser barking. Yeah, that wasn't uh, an official... Thing from the books. That was your dungeon master, me, thinking that that would be super cool. And it was. Yes. Yes, it was. At least I thought it was. I thought it was fun for 
give the dog a ranged attack. But yeah, those are the subclasses, and they provide a lot of options in terms of how you want to play your artificer. You can have them be, you know, a gunslinger that has a cannon that they carry around or deploy as a turret or whatever. You can have them be an alchemist who hurls potions rather than casting spells. You can have them be an armorer who's, you know, building this crazy suit of mechanical magic armor. Honestly, I would even allow, like, a small creature, a small player character, like a gnome or halfling who's an artificer, to treat their magical armor armor as being a medium creature that they hop inside and pilot like a mech. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would be totally cool with that. As long as it's not, like, large size. If it's just a medium thing. Then you have your battlesmiths who build themselves a dog or a lion or a velociraptor. It's up to the player as to what it looks like. Ooh, I want a mechanical roving mauler. We have a thing on this podcast where we discuss what would be the best subclass of any given class for a Modron to play. And I submit for the audience that a Modron battlesmith artificer with a roving mauler steel defender is impossible to top. Uh, I was I was thinking Modron battlesmith that was essentially like a self-replicating object. Oh, so his steel defender takes the form of another Modron? Yep, just more Modrons. That could be fun. Or or the uh, armorer as like a Modron hypercube, just a cube within a cube. That could be good. I also like the notion of a Modron artillerist artificer, where the cannon is like built into his chest. Why won't you let me craft a laser cannon into your chest? Uh, yeah. Uh, essentially, artificers give a lot of options for using magic in ways that no other class really does. They provide players with a good choice of essentially getting the magic items that they want, rather than just the magic items that the Dungeon Master is going to give them on a given adventure. Because artificers can use their infusions to create things like uh, bags of holding, or boots of flying, or um, what are some of the other ones? There's a bunch that they can do. It provides a lot of new options. I don't think I made anything particularly interesting in our last game, other than just magic weapons to beat stuff with. You know, the bag of holding, the rope of climbing. Immovable rods! Immovable rods for days. I don't know that they actually get immovable rods. They should. Oh, I would agree, and I would definitely... Well, if players wanted to mess with immovable rods, I would give them immovable rods. But yeah, winged boots, the... Helms of telepathy, boots of speed... Coins of blasting, etc. There are a lot of cool items that maybe the Dungeon Master wasn't planning on using, but the Artificer can just make it. Because that's what Artificers do. And, uh, yeah. Artificers provide, like I said, a interesting way of using magic that is not generally copied by any of the other classes. 
as somebody who generally prefers to play as a support type character, artificers are, they do it in a much more interesting way, I think, rather than something like clerics, where it's just like, heal me. I'd also point out that they are nice because they are an intelligence-based caster, which the only other major one is the wizard, and I guess also the uh, arcane trickster and eldritch knight subclasses for the rogue and fighter, respectively. Whereas pretty much all the other casters have at least two classes that do, do that. It wasn't until the Artificer got released that you had two intelligence casters as options. I don't know. Some of the stuff that I've seen at work uh, would definitely push back against having that as an intelligence-based class. I'm not sure if that's intelligence or wisdom that you're thinking of. Yeah, I always get the two mixed up, so I don't know. Well, I believe the saying is that intelligence is knowing that tomatoes are a fruit and wisdom is knowing that tomatoes should not be made into fruit salad. I guess I guess maybe that's wisdom that uh, is lacking then. That seems about likely. I mean, the stories of wizards doing ridiculous things because they can and not realizing that, you know, maybe they shouldn't would indicate that uh, wisdom is not their strongest suit. Well, nobody nobody said you had to have a lot of wisdom to go to trade school. This is true. Burn on myself. If I can do it, everybody else listening to this show can do it. I'm just plugging my career to anybody who will listen. What? Why? Do you want more competition? No, but skilled tradespeople are getting incredibly hard to find, especially good ones. All right, so if you're going to be a skilled tradesperson... Be good at it, I think, is the message to take away from this. Yeah, get get good. And also, the other message is that artificers are super fun, and you should all go out and play them immediately. Do it now. In, in any campaign you're currently in, if your character dies, come back as an artificer. That That's what I did when I was playing Curse of Strahd. I was going to say, like, robot, robotify your old corpse and do something with that, but that would be, like, necromancer crossed with artificer i don't know it's it's early in the morning i don't know what my brain is doing no in my in the curse of strahd game that i was in my dwarven paladin got killed and was unrecoverable um as the party had to flee from the thing that murdered him brutally and so i rolled up a warforged artificer who had stumbled into barovia somehow and was wearing a helmet so that people wouldn't know that he was a robot after the first peasant who saw him freaked the hell out. Mm -hmm. And Sir Blast was a very crucial member of the party, as the ability to infuse magic weapons onto everything made it much easier to fight vampires and other creatures that require magical weapons to hurt them. A uh, automatic crossbow that throws stakes. Uh, that would be the repeating shot infusion. On a crossbow. What about a what about a garlic press? Can you make that? I did not make a garlic press. I did, however, make a Eldritch cannon that just, you know, walked around and shot everything with force damage. So that was pretty slick. And my um eventual use of the feet that uh, of the elemental adept feet 
so that things that would have resistance to fire damage no longer did when I cast the spell was uh, pretty great for dealing with stuff as well. Burn it all down. I, I don't care that you normally can ignore fire, but because uh, my fire's extra hot. I got magnesium in there. I kind of like the idea now of a uh, alchemist who's kind of like a street chemist. Yeah. Anarchist. Anarchisty street chemist dude. An alchemist who's like making bombs and stuff and hurling those around would uh, explain stuff like Firebolt being an artificer cantrip. Artificers, they are fun. They're very fun. And Eberron is a fun setting. And I suppose we should announce here, since this is the last of the class episodes that we're going to do, our next series of things of episodes is going to be Dungeons and Dragons settings. We're going chronological. Anything that's had a couple of books, anything that's had at least one book published or has shown up in multiple editions uh, is going to get an episode. So we will talk about Eberron. I can't wait till we get to Dragonlance. We will talk about Dragonlance. We will talk about Greyhawk. We will talk about uh, Ravenloft. We will talk about Forgotten Realms and Planescape. Bring back Planescape, you scrubs. Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We will not be talking about some of the other weird ones, like uh, Ghost Walk. Ghost Walk, that doesn't sound familiar. It was one book published in 3.5. Huh. About a city full of ghosts. Eh. It had some interesting concepts, but clearly was not substantially interesting enough to sustain a full setting and multiple reprintings. And also, I seem to recall it coming out very late in the 3.5 life cycle. So people were kind of losing focus on the official releases at that point. But in any case, that's Artificers. Well, here, here's, here's a question for you. Uh, uh, what about Artificers and Spelljammer? Artificers and Spelljammer are awesome. We will be talking about Spelljammer and... Presumably, this will that episode will come out after Spelljammer comes out as a setting again for 5th edition. So, we'll be able to t- go into a little more detail about what's in the newest version. Woo! Take my money. I mean, that is the plan for publishing Spelljammer, right? Yes. And making it, splitting it into three different books so that they're more expensive? Yeah, I don't know... What's up with that? I see some editions where they're like, yeah, it's like 50 and it looks like a regular book. But then there's also like the one that's three books and is more expensive. And I'm like, what? What is the deal? I suspect that the three books is the ones that also comes with like the slipcase and the Dungeon Master screen and alternative alternative covers and stuff. I don't understand the point of splitting them into three books. I mean... Why not just do one? I I would I prefer the one, and I will purchase the one myself, because uh, that's how I like it. But I can almost understand the three books thing, because essentially it's one third of it is like monsters for the Dungeon Master to use. One third of it is an adventure that, 
you should use when running that adventure. And one third of it is player options and like how to play in the Planescape setting. So if, if you only want to buy, if you don't want to buy multiple copies of the book, but are playing in person and want to have stuff available, the dungeon master is going to need the book with all the monsters and the session and the adventure in it. And the players are going to need the book that has all the player options in it, and they might need them at the same time. Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. Because, I mean, like, Frostmaiden and all that, really, the Dungeon Master is the only one who actually needs the book. Yes. But in this, because there's an adventure in it, and because there's a bunch of monsters in it, it would sort of make sense to split that up so that the Dungeon Master has his own section of it. Normally I get the special editions because I really like the the fancy special edition artwork, but I don't particularly care for the artwork in this case, so I'll probably just do as you do and end up with just the one book. Yeah, I, I just want the one book because I don't play in person enough. Most of my games are online. So I just buy the online copy and that is loaded to everyone in my game for the game. And perhaps I'll have to start running a Spelljammer campaign here in the next few months. Woo! Or join a Spelljammer campaign if anyone who's listening to this podcast wants to run one. Jam those spells. You can reach us on Twitter. We're going to make some sweet pirates. My Warforged pirate. Ironbeard. And my character who's essentially going to be Zap Brannigan with a non-copyrighted name. Flash O'Flanahan. Yeah, that's a good one. Because I are creative. You're gonna send wave after wave of your own men into the Killforged. Because Warforged have a certain, uh, they have a kill limit. They have a preset kill limit after which they shut down, yes. I don't know if the same is true for uh, uh, Illithids. They have a preset brain limit after which they shut down? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Yep. They're just too full on brains. Can't do it anymore. But yeah, that's our artificers. So we have a segment on this podcast that we do towards the end called Board Game Corner. And today our board game is Forbidden Island. I've seen it, but I haven't played it. Originally published by Game Right Games in 2010, Forbidden Island is a really solid, like, family game about recovering historical artifacts from a sinking island. It's fully co-op. It has very simple mechanics where each person gets a couple of actions on their turn and actions are move, shore up an island tile that's falling into the ocean, or give a card from your hand to someone who's in the same location as you will. There's a ticking clock where... The island is falling into the ocean, and as the game goes on, this increases in pace so that more and more of the island falls into the ocean, and you're sort of racing against the clock to recover artifacts and then leave the island. You draw cards at the end of your turn, and you need four of a kind that match a particular artifact in order to trade them in in exchange for the artifact, and that's kind of what the giving cards to other people is about. Because if they've got three of a card and you have one and you give them the fourth, then they're all good to go. 
it has a sort of difficulty curve that's pretty solid because if you know what you're doing, it's possible to win and you can change how fast the island is sinking into the ocean at the start to sort of make the game progress much faster and force you to make good choices all the time. The lack of any sort of dice, of any real complicated maneuvers or follow-up stuff makes it easy to play with kids. And the physical components are all nicely made, and it comes in a cool metal tin rather than a cardboard box. So it's, you know, good for younger kids. As is the fact that it's all co-op and everyone wins or loses together. We gotta do an imperialism together. Well, it's an uninhabited island sinking into the ocean, so it actually avoids a lot of those issues. Huzzah! It has two follow-ups, Forbidden Desert and Forbidden Sky, taking place in a desert and a, like, steampunk floating island facility thing. So, you know, if you don't really care for islands that are sinking into the ocean, there are additional options. How does one make a desert sink into the ocean? Well, stuff is sinking into the sands Ah. of the desert. They missed an opportunity for some creativity there. The game's pretty straightforward. It's also, I think, a good introduction to games like Pandemic or that one firefighter one that we played. Uh, Flashpoint. Flashpoint, yes. Because it's a co-op game where everybody has a slightly different role and you're all working together to do something that gets harder and harder as the game goes on. Forbidden Island is like the kids' version of that. So if you like Pandemic but want to play with your children or nephews and nieces or younger cousins or... Or don't want to traumatize your players. Or don't want to traumatize your players or, you know, your parents aren't into board games that much. Forbidden Island is a good start for that. It's also super widely available. You can find it in, like, Targets. But uh, if you can find it in a local game store, I would recommend supporting your local game store. Do it now. Overall, I'd recommend it. It's fun. It's easy. It looks great. It's pretty cheap. So yeah, Forbidden Island. For when you want to play something simple. How forbidden is the island? Moderately. Moderately forbidden. It's not like Skull Island or anything. And that's our show. As always, thank you for listening. Play more games. Support your local unions and join a game store. We need a, a union of game stores. Oh, wait, no, that's just, that's a corporation. Sorry. Yeah, no, don't do that. Unionize your local game stores? Well, that, that may or may not work. You could try. Don't invade Ukraine? Yeah, don't do that. Follow us on Twitter. We are at Knoll Country. Follow us on Instagram, where we're just Knoll Country. Um, if you're starting a Spelljammer campaign, we would like to join. And, Ed, you got anything to plug? You can follow me at Animadness on Instagram. I post stuff there occasionally. Probably once I have more Dark Souls, there will be more to show off there. And then support your Ukrainian and LGBTQIA plus charities. Get people some money who desperately need it. And go Knowles! Go Knowles!